This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. It was at a school in Israel that a student went missing. She was eventually found inside a toilet cubicle. The girl had been murdered. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called Cubicle. The girl was brutally murdered, but who did it? It was back in 2006 that a group of students at a high school in Israel decided to skip their last class of the day. So instead of going to class, they sat talking in the school courtyard. Then one of the girls was thirsty and went back into the school building to get a drink of water. The girl's name was Taiya and she was 13 years old. Meanwhile, Taiya's mother was at work and was expecting a call from her daughter. It was now after school and when Taiya got home from school each day, she would usually phone her mother to let her know that she was home. But her daughter never called her, which she thought was unusual. But she thought Taiya must have just been with friends. However, when she got home, Taiya still wasn't there. She tried calling her on her cell phone, but there was no answer. She then called some of her friends, but no one had seen her. As it got later in the afternoon, her father and brothers came home and were told about Taiya not coming home from school. By now, they thought something was wrong, and their hunch turned out to be right. Taiya was found at 7pm that night in a school bathroom inside a toilet cubicle. She had been brutally murdered. The first person who became a possible suspect was the school gardener. One of the school staff told police that she had seen the gardener come into the school staff room and she thought he had been acting very strange. He looked panicked and something about him just seemed odd. The police questioned the man, who was a Russian immigrant. He gave an alibi to the police that he hadn't been at the school that day, but at another location, and his phone records confirmed the alibi, so the man was released. It was shortly after that that another man was questioned by police. He was also a Russian immigrant and was a construction worker at the school. Coincidentally, he looked similar to the gardener, so the police surmised that he may have been the person in the staff room, not the gardener. When questioned, he stated that yes, he had been working at the school on the day of Tyre's murder. The police asked him what he had been wearing on that day. Now, this particular question was important, as Tyre had died as a result of having her throat cut with a knife. The toilet cubicle had been covered in blood, so the perpetrator would have definitely had blood on their clothes. When asked the question, the man stated he had changed his work clothes before he left school that day and the clothes were still in a bag at the school. So the police accompanied the man to the school to access the bag. But as they were going to get the bag, the man said something that the police thought was quite strange. He stated that the bag wouldn't have his work pants as he had thrown them away. 
Now, this information led the police to believe that the man was a strong suspect in Tair's murder. He had been quite nervous when they had interviewed him, and now he was saying that he had disposed of clothing, which they could only conclude was because they were stained with blood. The man was arrested and became a suspect in Tair's murder. When the man's house was searched, the police found many knives, which he said was his hobby. They also found that he had visited various websites about knives on his computer, and more shockingly, they found around 200 photos of naked young girls. When the man's wife was questioned, she said that on the night of the murder, they were at home together when he got a call from his boss at the school. He told his wife that the boss had said that there had been a problem at the school and that a girl had fallen into a toilet. When the police questioned the boss, he stated that he hadn't said anything to him about a girl falling into a toilet. In fact, at the time, the boss hadn't even known about Tyre's murder. The police then questioned the suspect about the differences in their recollections of the phone call, and he finally admitted that his boss had not said anything about a bathroom or toilet. He was then asked to explain why he would say this to his wife. He explained that when his boss said there was a problem at the school, that he just assumed the girl had fallen in the bathroom or in the toilet. The police pressed the man on this point. Why would he be so specific about a toilet? And that's when the man shouted, I didn't kill the girl. I didn't kill her. The police interrogation got more heated, with the police calling him a liar and urging him to confess. But the man denied killing her over and over. At one point, the police left the interrogation room, but the room was being videotaped. The man can be heard singing a song in Russian, and when translated, he had said, quote, Black Raven, why do you hover above my head? You won't catch any prey today, Black Raven, I am not your prey. So, did these words imply that the raven was the police and that they would not catch him as Tyre's killer? Despite putting the man under an intense interrogation to confess, he refused to crack continuing to plead his innocence. And that's when they decided to employ another tactic. They made up a false story that blood had been found on the clothes in the bag at the school. His response to this was that it was impossible, as he had not killed her. The interrogation continued on for many hours, until he said something which he hadn't previously said. He stated that he had been in the men's bathroom at the school and had seen blood in the toilet. So he thought this could explain how the blood was found on his clothes, that maybe he got the blood on his clothes by accident. This made the police even more convinced that this man was the murderer. And it also must be noted that these police tactics 
of providing false information to a suspect was perfectly legal at the time in Israel. With the police convinced he was the killer, they had to somehow get a confession out of him. So they decided to put a police informant in his prison cell. This prisoner was offered money in exchange for getting a confession from the suspect. So the informer gets to work befriending the man, hoping he would trust him enough to confess. As the suspect was Russian and not aware of how things worked in Israel, he asked the informer if the police can fabricate evidence in Israel. Now, the informer ensured him that they wouldn't do that, that Israel was not communist like Russia. The man then slowly opened up more about himself. And when the informant brought up Tahir, he even revealed that sometimes he could get very upset about things and that once he even beat his brother until he bled. He then admitted that maybe he did kill her, but that he couldn't remember saying maybe he had gone crazy. It was then that he started whispering to the informer. There is audio of this conversation and the man says, quote, she didn't realise what was happening. She fainted right away. I bullshit the detective. There were no witnesses. I am sure of that. But I made one mistake. I didn't clean up the blood in the men's room. That was my mistake. He then goes on to demonstrate on the informer how he killed her, performing two slashing motions as if he had a knife in his hand. Tyre's throat had been cut twice, so after the police view this video, they are convinced that he killed her. He was then interrogated again, and this time the police finally got what they wanted. The man confessed to the murder of Tyre. He stated, quote, when I slashed her, she raised her arm and I hit her again and again. She fell toward the toilet, hit her head and fell. She twitched a little and that was it. When asked about why he had targeted this girl, he explained that he had often been ridiculed for being a Russian immigrant. He stated that the kids at the school would make fun of him, saying nasty things about his family and that he had finally snapped. He recalled that he had been inside the school building when he came across Taya. She asked him for a cigarette, but he refused, and she then called him a son of a bitch. Taya then walked away and he followed her. She went into the bathroom, and that's when he attacked her. The police then took the man to the school to reenact the crime, which was filmed. This video can be easily accessed online. It shows the man in handcuffs walking through the school and into the bathroom where the murder took place. A female officer played the part of Tyre and the video shows the woman in the toilet with the man coming up behind her and grabbing her. He demonstrates how he cut her throat and the position that her body was left in. He then said that the toilet had been locked and so he had to climb out of the top of the cubicle which he demonstrates on the video. The absolutely shocking nature of this crime against a girl in a school made the man's arrest and confession a huge relief to the country of Israel, let alone to her own family. However, this was not the end of the story, far from it. 
as the case, would then take a sudden turn that no one expected. When the man's lawyers examined the details of the case, they became convinced that their client did not murder Taiya. And that's when a stunning turn of events occurred. The man retracted his confession. His lawyers believed they had uncovered a number of irregularities in the case, and in particular, how the police had conducted the investigation, including how they had managed to extract the man's confession. They then provided what they believed was the evidence that their client was not only innocent, but that the police had actually and knowingly framed him for the murder. So here is how they came to that conclusion. The DNA taken at the crime scene did not match with the suspect. They examined his clothing for DNA, as well as his washing machine, which he may have used to wash the blood-soaked clothes. His shoes were also examined, as the crime scene showed three bloody footprints inside the toilet cubicle, but the prints did not match the man's. They also investigated the nude photos on the man's computer, and it was found that the computer had been second-hand, so all of the photos could have been from a previous owner. But what about the confession? If no DNA had been found that matched, then surely the confession would still seal the man's fate. However, this phenomena of innocent people confessing is more common than one would think. But how? Why would someone confess to something they didn't do, particularly murder, when they are likely to get life in prison or even the death penalty? In this man's case, his interrogation had taken place over a few weeks. He hadn't had any contact with his wife or family. And in fact, the police told him that after hearing what he had done, his wife would most definitely leave him. However, in the early days, he had maintained that he was innocent and that the DNA would prove it. But that's when the police used the tactic of lying about blood being found on his clothes. And when his lawyers examined the video of the informant trying to extract a confession, they noted that he was the one who suggested that maybe he had done it but didn't remember. And he bolstered this argument, saying that there are many well-documented cases of people who had murdered but had not remembered doing it. So his lawyers believed that the informant had fed him this information and that eventually the man believed him and began questioning himself and that maybe he had done it. It was also discovered by his lawyers that the informant had been offered money to get the confession, so they argued it was in his interest to say whatever he could to get that confession. The informant told the man that this crime would certainly result in a life sentence, and that perhaps if he confessed, he may only get six or seven years. So he suggested he would be better off confessing. He also told him what he should say. He should say that everyone in Israel drove him nuts, that being Russian made him a target, that everywhere he went, people gave him dirty looks. And it was noted that the man used 
these exact words in the interrogation when he ultimately confessed. So his lawyers argued here that it was the informant's pressure that led to the confession, that he made him believe a confession would give him a shorter sentence. Another detail that his lawyers noted was the video that showed the man demonstrating how he slashed Tahir's throat. It showed him using his right hand. However, the autopsy had determined the slashing had occurred by someone using their left hand. Now, it would appear that the man must have been guilty due to the sheer number of things that he had said that had placed him at the crime scene, things that only the killer could have known. However, his lawyers argued that the police had fed him a lot of information. When watching the interrogation videos, the police led him information such as the following. They asked him what he was doing on the second floor, therefore telling him where the crime had taken place. They also asked, what did the girl ask you for? And he had never said anything about the girl asking him for something. Why did you follow her up the stairs? So again, they're giving information about the crime. Questions such as these provided the man with details that he had never brought up himself. His lawyers believed he then used these details in his confession. Another question they asked him was about what knife he had used to kill her. He replied that he used a box cutter. This box cutter was never found, and it was actually determined that the weapon had had a serrated blade. A number of pathologists were shown the crime scene photos independently of each other and all concluded that the knife had a serrated blade. Another detail which was disputed was that Taia had asked him for a cigarette. Her family were adamant she didn't smoke, which of course is not enough evidence by itself, as often parents do not fully know what their teenagers get up to. But this lawyer surmised that when the police asked him what Taia asked him for, a cigarette was the first thing that came to his mind. So, armed with all this evidence, his defence entered the trial ready to prove their client was innocent and that he had been framed. The man's trial did not have a jury. In Israel at the time, cases were heard by three judges. The defence provided their argument on all the points that they believed demonstrated his innocence and that he had been coerced into a confession. The lack of a DNA match, the informant's motivation to get a confession for money, the police pressure placed on the man, the dishonest police tactics, the murder weapon not being found, the killer being right-handed, etc. So one point of discussion was the three footprints. It was determined that they didn't match the accused. So they felt this evidence would be a strong case against him being the killer. However, the prosecution responded by saying that perhaps the prince could have belonged to someone from the rescue team who had removed Taia from the stall. This possibility was investigated, but the prince did not belong to anyone who had been present at the crime scene. So the defence argued 
that if they could not find anyone who matched the prints, then their client couldn't have been the killer. On this point, the three judges concluded that sometimes some things just remain a mystery. So in 2010, the man was found unanimously guilty by the three judges and he received a life sentence. However, as it was a highly publicised trial, once the general population in Israel digested the facts in the case, there was an overwhelming majority who didn't agree with the verdict and who believed that the man was innocent. But what about her own family? Well, quite interestingly, her father did believe the man killed her, but her mother didn't. After the trial, her mother, Ilana, made it public that she believed the man had been coerced into a confession. Even the man's own wife believed he was innocent. They then put all their efforts into proving this to be the case and spent the years afterwards trying to get his conviction overturned. Four years after the conviction, the man appealed his sentence but was again convicted by the same three judges. A year later, they tried again, but this time the case went to the Supreme Court. Two judges said guilty, but the other one said not guilty and asked for an acquittal. But in the Israeli system, the majority ruled. So, while the man was in prison, the details of the case continued to be investigated, and that's when a theory was put forth that the police had been single-minded in pursuing one man instead of also looking at the possibility that the killer could have been a student at the school. In the initial police investigation, all the staff and students had been interviewed. Their testimony was examined again, and here is what was discovered. As Taia had not gone to her last class, this would have been sometime around 1pm. According to the other students, she had gone to get a drink at about 1.20. They found that six girls said they had gone into the bathroom at around that time up until about 2pm. However, none of these six girls saw each other in the bathroom. The coroner's report showed that she had been hit on the head seven times. So the question was asked, why would an adult, presumably a man, if the accused had done it, why would he need to hit her so many times? Wouldn't he be able to subdue her quickly and easily? So that is how they came up with a new theory, that she had been killed by a group of students. However, all of the students who had been questioned did not have their DNA fingerprints or shoe prints taken at the time. Therefore, there was no evidence that could be used to tie any of them to the crime. Taia was also found to have a clump of hair in one of her hands. None of these were found to be the man's, but they were never pursued further to determine who they may have belonged to. So if Taia's mother didn't think the man was guilty, then did she have someone that she suspected? And the answer is yes. Taia had a friend at school who were on good terms to begin with, but then they began having disagreements and the friendship broke down. Taia was said to be afraid of this girl. 
and coincidentally, this girl had left town after the murder, only to return a few days later. And further to this, her father was also a policeman. So Taiya's mother suspected that her father had covered up his daughter's crime. It's not surprising to hear that Israel became captivated with this case. And as already stated, a large majority believed the man had been framed. The debate over who killed Taiya, not surprisingly, made its way onto Facebook and a group was created who believed that he was innocent. The group put forward their own theory that the murderer was this particular girl who had previously been friends with Taiya and another friend of hers. These two girls were attacked and all sorts of theories were put forward as to why and how they carried out the murder. The girls' reputations were soon in tatters. Through the various discussions in the group, things were said which the girls denied and as can be imagined, a whole bunch of untruths led to a snowball effect which resulted in these girls being tried and found guilty by Facebook. So the group managed to create a conspiracy theory which sucked a lot of people in. The group then put letters into every mailbox in the town stating that these two girls were the killers. They started receiving hate mail and the cyberbullying online got totally out of control. But this bizarre story is not yet over and another twist then occurred. It was in this particular Facebook group that a man went against the majority and made his assertion that he thought the two girls were innocent. But not only that, he also said that he knew who the actual killer was. So the man went to the police and provided his statement. And here is what he said. This man had a girlfriend who he described as having problems. She had told him that she believed she had a she-wolf within her who wanted her to slash people. She told him that one day she went to Tahir's school, but that she had concealed her identity. She wanted to look like a man. So to do this, she wrapped a cloth around her chest to flatten her breasts and even wore some of her boyfriend's clothes. She put a wig on and a cap and also carried a backpack, which contained gloves, a hunting knife and a change of clothing. This girl used to go to Tahir's school, so she knew her way around. She went into the female bathroom and waited for someone to come in alone. However, many girls came into the bathroom together, so she had to keep waiting inside the toilet cubicle. Finally, after two hours, a girl came in by herself, and that girl was Tahir. She grabbed her and dragged her into the stall and proceeded to murder her. But then she heard some girls come into the bathroom and they entered the vacant stalls. But one girl had to wait. Seeing that the door was closed, she knocked anyway in case there was no one in there. And she heard a voice from inside say that it was occupied. The killer then tried quickly to stop the blood from seeping out under the stall to prevent the girls from seeing it. After they had gone, she climbed out of the stall and quickly made her way out of the school, somehow undetected. She went home and had a shower, 
then phoned her boyfriend and confessed everything to him. Now, it must be noted that he told the police this story some six years after the murder, and it was found by the police that this girl had only recently broken up with him. So they questioned whether he made up this story to get back at her. He could have easily used the details of the case which had been reported in the media. He was subsequently given a lie detector test three times and he passed each one. He described his ex as being very depressed and suicidal throughout their relationship. She often spoke about having violent thoughts. After giving his story, the police informed him that since he had only come forward some six years after the murder, that his statement could also lead to his implication in the murder, but he was adamant that his story was true. So the police then wanted to hear her side of the story, and of course, she disputed everything, saying that he was the one who was violent and that he had beat and raped her. She believed that he was just wanting to get revenge on her for dumping him. The police were able to access the couple's text messages, which showed that they had a very tumultuous relationship. After hearing this new information, the prosecutors did not want to reopen the case, as they felt that this was just a bizarre case of she said, he said, and therefore not worthy of a new trial. And the plot thickened when this girl tried to kill someone else and was subsequently sent to a psychiatric hospital. Despite the prosecutors not wanting to reopen the case, the man's lawyers managed to have this new evidence taken to the Supreme Court, but it was also thrown out, saying that the man just wanted to get back at his girlfriend. However, it was just three years ago, in 2019, that the convicted man had a new lawyer who refiled for a retrial. In the Israeli judicial system, retrials were extremely rare, so the chances were very low. His lawyers knew that only new evidence could result in a retrial, and that's when they discovered something which had previously been overlooked. The hair that Taia had in her hand was found not to belong to the accused, and as already stated, they had not been tested for anyone else. So his lawyer requested that the hair be tested against the man who gave the new evidence about his girlfriend. The prosecution denied this request, but it was the convicted man's own wife who paid for the testing herself. An independent lab showed that the hair matched with the boyfriend, but not with his girlfriend. However, a further investigation found that the man's alibi of being at work that day proved to be correct, as his phone records had placed him at work and not at the school. But there was also the possibility that his hair could have been on his own clothes that she then wore during the murder. So, with this new evidence, the man's lawyers filed a motion for a retrial. Then, just in May last year, 2021, the Supreme Court ruled that there was sufficient doubt 
to exonerate the convicted man and a retrial was announced. But the prosecutors decided against pursuing an investigation against the woman as the boyfriend's evidence was unreliable. Now, this man was then released to house arrest ahead of the retrial, and he had to wear an electronic ankle bracelet. In the first part of the process, the prosecution announced that they would rerun DNA tests with the latest DNA testing in order to prove that the man was guilty. So it wasn't long after the man was found guilty of Tahir's murder that a new synagogue was built and dedicated to Tahir. Her parents attended the dedication ceremony, but her father was very sick at the time. He had to be stretched into the ceremony. He was battling cancer. At the ceremony, he said, quote, It is a good feeling to finally achieve the vision I have had for all these years since the murder. With the completion of this little temple dedicated to the memory of Tahir, it is not easy for me being very ill. I made every effort to make it to this occasion. But then, how sad is this? He died only the day after this ceremony. And at his funeral, Tahir's mother said that he was a king going to join his queen. She added, I also don't want to stay here. Take me to them too. My Tahir, daddy is coming to protect you. And to finish, as I normally do, I looked for Tahir on the Find a Grave website, but she wasn't there, which is the first time that I haven't actually found a person whose story that I have presented. But if you'd like to find out more about her, her name is Tahir Rada, T-A-I-R-R-A-D-A. So at the time that I recorded this episode, the retrial had started. So I am following the case and will do an update once the trial is finished. And now I'd like to share a podcast recommendation with you. Take a listen to this promo. Hey everyone, I'm Laura. And I'm Jill. And we are the hosts of Crime Divers Podcast. We are Scottish sisters who tell each other true crime cases that other hasn't heard of. New episodes are released every Tuesday and you can find us on your favourite podcast platform. So what are you waiting for? Grab your wetsuit and join us as we dive into the world of true crime. But remember, watch out for those sharks! And now let's preview the next episode. It's called Degree Mill. People were scammed into enrolling in fake universities. How did this happen? And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote about confessions, which is worth thinking about. Someone said, There are, I believe, many more false confessions to murders than true confessions. Bye for now. And remember to be a good apple.